1: Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal, where we're proud to support some of the inspiring leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I speak with Connecticut Senator Bob Duff about what it means to be majority leader and his responsibilities governing during COVID and the expectations we place on our elected representatives. We also talk about some of the work he's most proud of, including rewriting a decades-old education funding formula about how Connecticut will prioritize federal funding coming from the American Rescue Plan and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, and how receiving a response to a letter when he was just eight years old put him on a path to public service. Bob Duff, welcome to An Honorable Profession.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: It's so great to see you and I was just saying off air so I'm gonna say it again that I just I love when I get to interview people I've known for a long time people who are friends because in doing so I always find out new uh, stories about them and I'm excited to to talk to you about that a little later in the show about how you got into politics but as we talked about the intro you know you've been in the legislature for about 20 years and you've been majority leader since 2015. I thought I'd start with just a question about for those people Surely who are aspiring to public office, maybe someday, what is a majority leader? What are your responsibilities and how has that been being in that role over these last, let's say, 20 months or so during COVID?
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, majority leader is, is different for, you know, various states and each leader brings their own unique kind of stamp, I guess, on on the issue, uh, on the position, I should say. But first, I just want to say real quick that I just, how much I love New Deal and really putting all these great leaders together in one room uh, at least once a year, and we all come together sometimes now on Zoom and everything else, and just such a great opportunity to collaborate and swap ideas and talk to each other and just have boundless hopes and optimism for our country. And New Deal has done that so well. So thank you. And I just had to say that before I got started.
1: I appreciate. Thank you. You do give me hope and optimism. So thank you for thank
2: you. that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you all do so. So majority leader, you know, like I said, everybody has a different style, I guess, based on who they are and how they came to there and that kind of stuff. And you know, kind of, it kind of goes to what you are saying earlier about how I, you know, we'll talk about this later about my start in politics. I don't come from a political family, and I, I know there's a lot of people who don't come from political families either. And you know, I think sometimes looking from the outside in you kind of like, oh, you know, if my last name isn't like Clinton or Bush or Kennedy or, you know, name a, name a family, you know, in some states that have had a lot of political success, if you don't come from that, there's no way you can break in. And so I, I think I come about it from a standpoint of trying to make sure that we're always fighting for the people who generally don't have a voice. And, you know, being majority leader means that you have a greater stage and a greater bully pulpit. In order to really stand up for the things that you believe in and for the people who sent you there. And not only that, but you're, you know, you're leading a caucus as well of your party. In Connecticut, anyway, the majority leader does a number of things. One is runs the floor when the state senate is in session, you know, almost like a traffic cop kind of you know, figuring out, you know, what bills are going to go today, what are talkers, what are not talkers. In Connecticut, anyway, we we don't have limits on debate. So I know in other states. They may say, okay, well, you know, bill one, two, three is going to, we're going to debate it for an hour and you'll get a half hour on one side and you'll get a half hour on the other side and we'll have three amendments. For us, it's almost like the wild west. You know, we don't know. We try and figure that stuff out behind the scenes beforehand, you know, and you do your best with the other side of the aisle, but you know, you try and get through your priorities. You try and do that. I also chair the executive and legislative nominations committee, which is a committee that uh, whether it's legislative appointments that need to come through. So, for example, the port authority of, of all things, or the airport authority, some legislators like legislative leaders have appointments and those have to go through the legislature. The governor appoints the secretary of the Department of Transportation, uh, the commissioner of the Department of Transportation, commissioner of the Department of Social Services, and on and on. Those folks have to come to the uh, legislature and the executive and legislative nominations committee. So they have to pass through us before they can get through the House and or Senate. As well, So I would like to say that the, the majority leader is interesting because, you know, as in most state legislatures, we're, we're part time. So kind of our the formal part of the role is, is you know, very finite. But I would say that anybody who's in elective office and, again, is um, having a greater bully pulpit as a leader of, of, of the legislature and of the state, that a uh, majority leader 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and that, that provides uh, an opportunity for me to speak and to say things and to stand up for things that I believe in, whether the legislature is in session or not.
1: I want to follow up on that, Bob, in terms of the question about or the statement you just made about the fact that you guys are part time, because I do think that some people and there was a great article in Political recently about this about part time legislatures and the fact that constituents don't understand that, right? Constituents don't understand that people are balancing other jobs with their legislative duties. And particularly in this crazy period, we've just been through where government was needed in so many different ways during COVID. The expectations, I think, for constituents were really high. And how, how did you find that, you know, I mean, both general Speaking as a legislator in, in your long career, but also in particularly in these last 20 months or so?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a great question because, yeah, a lot of people think that A, we live in Washington, D.C., B, that we all make one hundred seventy dollars or $180,000 a year like our, our federal counterparts do. And, and in fact, you know, most state legislatures pay close to nothing. I mean, uh, we in Connecticut haven't had a raise in over 20 years. And I think we're probably one of the better paid ones at $30,000 a year. So it's, it's, Yeah, people don't really understand the part-time legislature thing. You know, I get that. And, you know, we we have to do a better job of maybe explaining that a little bit. But I will say that, you know, if you rank and file in in the House, you know, there's more of you. It's a little easier to kind of do the Balancing Act as a senator, state senator. It gets a little harder. As a legislative leader, it gets really, really hard because, you know, here we are. We've been out since June 9th. And our last day was my 20th anniversary, as a matter of fact. So that was kind of an interesting way to spend uh, my 20th anniversary with <laughs> 187 of my closest friends, but not uh, with my wife.
1: Your wife appreciated um, that, right? But, yeah.
2: <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, and we're in December now, and we're still doing redistricting. We have COVID that's now, you know, coming back with Omicron and, other types of things that, that take your attention. So it is difficult to balance for sure. And I would say that, you know, i I've been a real estate agent for 25 years and that people say, well, the real estate market is great. How are you doing with it? I'm like, I'd be doing a lot better. If I had one thing to focus on, but you try and balance it. So it makes it a little more difficult to, to do that. So you have to figure out ways in which you can still earn a living, do your legislative job and still, you know, have your family at the same time. So I think everybody. Whether you're Democrat or Republican, you try and balance it out the best you can. Specifically to COVID, I would say, especially in the beginning, all of us, you know, uh, all of us, again, no matter, it doesn't matter the side of the aisle you're on. But I would say that everybody I talked to literally spending 16 to 18 hours a day helping people make sure they had food on the table make sure they were getting their unemployment benefits or or helping them or listening or ensuring you know people's health and safety. It was a time that it was a most interesting time and a most stressful time and all of us trying to learn as we were going through this whole thing. Like yeah you know, people say you know we kind of use cliché building a plane while you're flying it. But it really was that and of of trying to do everything we could to help people in really the most stressful time, especially if you're a small business owner or you just got laid off. I say here in Connecticut, we've done a, a pretty good job of that. The federal delegation did a good job, but um, but it's was, it was definitely been difficult and taken a lot more time probably than normally would have had we just been in session.
1: Well, and it feels to me like from where I sit and I look around the country, we are through maybe that emergency phase of this, hopefully, although you noted we're keeping an eye on that. But, um, you know, we're now kind of transitioning, it feels like, into a rebuilding time, which I'm not sure is gonna be any easier, right? A lot of what we learned during COVID were that there were so many gaps in our services, so many disparities in access to things, you know, that were existed well before COVID but were so highlighted through the pandemic. And now it feels like uh, we may have an opportunity to do something about that, particularly with the federal funding coming to states and cities through the American Rescue Plan, which already passed, the infrastructure bill just passed, and hopefully through Build Back Better. So and with your majority leader hat on, you know, how important are those funds? What will that mean for Connecticut? What are you focusing on as we think about building back from the pandemic?
2: I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, you know, thank goodness for a federal response on this, because the states, there's no way the states could have done this ourselves. I mean, we our our economies come back very strongly, but we needed that that federal help with the American Rescue Plan and others. You know, and President Biden's, there's a lot of credit for getting that done very, very quickly. So that's helpful. I, I think with the um, American Rescue Plan, that has been really helpful to getting people the help that they've needed. So for example, here in Connecticut, I'll just give one small example, but it was really successful. You know, a lot of kids lost time in school because they were either remote or they could couldn't participate, but they weren't in person. And so, one of the things we did this year was to provide free admission for museums and other kind of summer places, summer camps. Different ways in which kids can come back together, socialize. They can kind of catch up a little bit from uh, missing some of some of their schooling, and to try and you know have them be kids again. So there were you know uh, all these museums all over the state were just packed with people. But, but in an educational way. And it was extremely successful to the museums, for the kids, for the families, and it, and it kind of brought back a sense of normalcy. And that was thanks, and thanks really to the American Rescue Plan. And I can just give example after example after example of that. And you have the Childhood Tax Credit you know the stimulus dollars that went to people i mean you know there's a reason why prices are up and things are are more expensive right now and that's because there's more money in the economy and this is why wages you know wages are up because you know people are saying you know there's they they want better jobs and and they know that they can demand that now because of the fact of you know how things were and how things are and you know a lot of people said I'm going to go back to college. I'm going to. I'm going to try a different, uh, different occupation. But a lot of that is because of, of kind of the, the the last year and a half to two years that we've been in. And I, I would say that you know the money in the economy, the child tax credit, the American Rescue Plan funds that have gone down to the states and the cities has really been very very helpful. I know in the city I represent, Norwalk, they've got a lot of plans on what they can do with that money of, of things that they never could even think about before because they're too busy. You know, fixing other types of infrastructure, or too busy. You know, trying to build schools or uh, things that always took all the extra money. Now there's additional money that they can do. So you know, from a from a majority leader standpoint, I would say that statewide we're trying to have a really a an approach that is meaningful and impactful, not just hey we're just going to give five hundred dollars here or five hundred thousand dollars there or you know, uh, whatever it is, something that will actually mean something for people and will have good long-term benefits, not just short-term political gain.
1: Yeah, I think that's so important because it does really feel like it's this once in a generation, once in a century opportunity to invest in some of these long-standing inequities, and hopefully that that will will get where we need to go. So you have worked on a lot of these issues that were exasperated COVID for some time. I wanted to maybe just take a couple and talk to you about kind of some of the work that you've done over the years. I know one thing that you've been really active on, One of, I think that you would say is one of your great successes as majority leader was to really rethink the education funding in the state of Connecticut. And, you know, that was kind of thinking about redoing an old formula that had been there for decades. Why was that so important? And what did you do?
2: Yeah, thank you. You know, what we saw, as you said, you know, the cracks were already there. They were just exposed more because of COVID. And I think it opened a lot of people's eyes as to what needed to get done. You know, a few years ago when we had a 18 to 18 Senate and uh, the House was uh, narrowly divided as well, we had a bipartisan budget. And I remember we sat in a room, we didn't have a budget on time. So we, the six leaders literally sat in the room from probably June or July till October. And I think we actually made the announcement around Halloween, uh, if not on Halloween, that we had a bipartisan budget. But I remember sitting there, one of the things that was most important to me, because I've been working on it for a number of years, was to actually have an education formula, funding formula for our districts here in Connecticut that worked for the kids, not worked for the adults or the politicians. And that included doing a lot of different things because uh, we wanted to make sure that we were Treating kids in a way that ensured their success. You know, Connecticut, as I say a lot of times, our natural resource is really our human resources, our people. We have the uh, most uh, efficient workforce, most highly educated workforce. We don't have natural gas wells or oil wells that we can tap into, that like other states do, where you know that's their that's that's their money. Our money is on our people and the fact that people come, companies come to this state because of the fact that we have highly educated, highly motivated very efficient workers and a highly efficient workforce. So we have to make sure that we have kids who are ready for the jobs of the 21st century. As we're seeing right now, the baby boomers are retiring. You wanna know one of the reasons why we have a workforce problem is because we have a lot of people who are retiring and not enough bodies to fill that. This is not a new problem. So we, one of the things that I you know, have been thinking about for such a long time, all those years ago, is the fact that we can't afford, nor is it morally right, to have uh, kids in our biggest cities like Hartford, New Haven, Waterbury, uh, Bridgeport, uh, Norwalk, where I live, and Stanford and other places, graduate kids who only 30 or 40% of them at the level they need to be at for success. So that's why we had to do new funding for this. So it weights it to uh, English language learners, to poverty, concentrated poverty, and, and makes other adjustments that I think have been very successful so far. I made a couple more tweaks this year. But we're seeing good results because we're seeing dis- districts that are growing in the urban areas, and not the suburban areas so much. We're seeing that there are a lot of need out there from a lot of our kids and that uh, we need to make sure that we are putting funding in places that will actually provide the needed feedback and the needed results to to get kids where they need to be. So I think that, um, you know, for, for me anyway, it, it's a, it was difficult because changing any kind of funding is difficult. We have a 10-year phase in, as a matter of fact, of that, but we continue to put more dollars in there to help our school districts across the state. That's
1: so great. That's so great. Another issue that is been an issue for a long time, but continues to be an issue today is housing and trying to mm-hmm. find ways to do affordable housing. I know you were, uh, I think, the p- person behind the effort in Connecticut to get the housing trust fund and some other kind of creative ways to make sure that people had an avenue of, for foreclosures and other things. So ha- how is that going in Connecticut? It's such a big problem all over the country right now. And what are you working on there?
2: Yeah, that's, uh, another great question. So uh, here's the way I look at it is that there's, I guess there's different philosophies on how you grow an economy. And some some will say, well, you just got to cut taxes and that'll grow the economy. And that's certainly a philosophy. I subscribe to the philosophy of this kind of a three-legged stool of of growing an economy. One is having a transportation system that is reliable and consistent. Uh, Two is having housing that is affordable, workforce housing, affordable housing, and not just in one place, but in every single community. And third is having an education system that works for all of our kids. So there's three legs to the school, and that includes higher education, preschool, all that kind of stuff, just education is a big bucket. But affordable housing is a huge component of our success or not as a state. And I think I would argue that's probably a huge success of any state or our country, because what we find is that, you know, people can't afford to live where they work or it's too far away. It stresses families out. Uh, it creates bottlenecks on our highways. You know, we don't have places where seniors can live or where college graduates can live or even family. You know, families who are just starting out can live. So, you know, I, I live in Fairfield County, Connecticut, which is an, ex- an extremely expensive place to live. And it's important for us to make sure that, you know, the person who is giving me the coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, that they don't live 50 miles away from here because that's the only place they can afford it. Think about what that's like for themselves and their families. They have to work two or three jobs in order to kind of pay the rent. What that does to kids, their educational system, how it stresses our transportation system—so it all kind of comes together. I think that I think is what we need to be striving for. And Norwalk's done a very good job of that. Uh, I think our suburbs need to do a better job of that. So we did a zoning bill this year that, that kind of just puts the nose under the tent. It, it, uh, Representative McCarthy Bayh, who's also a New Deal leader, uh, worked very very hard on it. I think it take some small but important steps to getting us in a place where we need to go. But I think that it will it will provide a, a roadwork or a framework for the future. The other thing is when I was housing chair in my first year in the state senate, I did do a housing trust fund, uh, which was $100 million towards affordable housing, which at the time was a lot of money. Governor Malloy, who was also involved with New Deal leaders, made affordable housing a centerpiece of his administration, and we were able to do a lot of work on affordable housing, and I was very, very proud of, of that. When I was bank chair, we did the foreclosure mediation program, which was voluntary. This was to, to um, offset the and react to the subprime mortgage crisis, and people thought, well, we just need it for a couple of years, and we still have it, and really what happened was... voluntary now it's mandatory if somebody's getting foreclosed on or there's a short sale they have to go through this foreclosure remediation program probably one of the most important things i feel like i've done outside the educational cost sharing as a legislator because i I know it has literally saved thousands of people from losing their home Uh, and the reason i know that is i have the stats and i've had people call me and say thank you for not having me get kicked out of my home so imagine that you know a lot of the things that we do in, in the legislature is very intangible you know, you, you pass a policy and you hope that it works or, you know, you're not really sure of the results of these various policies. Foreclosure mediation is one of those things where you can see the stats right in front of you. And we also, uh, we did a three-part three, three part bill on that. The second part was actually the Mortgage Crisis Job Training Program, which helps unemployed or underemployed people get jobs or better jobs prior to them being foreclosed on. So it's, a, it's, a, it's trying to be proactive. And actually, if anybody's ever heard of the platform to employment program, which is national, it was on 60 Minutes, is born out of the Mortgage Crisis Job Training Program, and it's run by the Workplace Incorporated, which is right here in Fairfield County, Connecticut. So, so I think you know those are some of the things that you know as a legislator and and as a leader, you have that opportunity to really make meaningful impacts for people in their lives, and it's and it's not necessarily district specific. It's, it could be statewide, but a lot of these programs have been replicated around the country and you have the opportunity to really change people's lives in a good way. And, you know, there's public service, especially these days can be really frustrating and really difficult. And, you know, I think in, in a lot of ways, you know, you see why people sometimes say, you know, I'm just, I just don't want to do this anymore. Or I don't even want to get into it. But I would say that, and this is why I love the podcast of being an honorable profession, because it is an honorable profession. And, you know, the loudest voices are mostly the minority of voices. They just tend to be the loudest. But, you know, you talk to people, they just want you to help their lives. They want you to help make it a little bit better for them and not make it so difficult. And I think that anybody who goes into public service, that you can just try and do that, and um, anyway, so I'm sorry to go on so long no, about that. No, but I, I couldn't agree more things. with you. I,
1: I appreciate you saying that because I mean, and you know, I feel this way. But I, you know, I'm just so honored to work with so many of you around the country, particularly in these times. We started the podcast pre-COVID, and you know, absolutely, politics and public service is an honorable profession. And I feel like no more so has it been apparent than in the last uh, 20 months when you guys are doing this in such tough circumstances with a lot of animosity and a lot of high tension and you know and, and important stakes and so to all the people who are out there listening about uh, some of the stuff you were just talking about on housing i mean clearly this some of the work you did a long time ago as you said during the subprime mortgage crisis and other times are tools that can be used today because we're dealing facing the same kind of um, crisis around the country on housing so i hope people will take a look a lot of that material is on our website at newdealleaders.org you can find some of bobs ideas i want to ask about one other issue before i talk to you about to you about your path to public service yourself, but there's an issue that's more of an emerging issue that I know you've been working on more recently, which is cybersecurity. And some people might find it surprising that th- not think of it that as the state's role in that. So tell me why that is important to you and what, what you're doing.
2: Yeah, I think that's really, it's a really important issue. Cybersecurity, I mean, nowadays, I mean, every, every I mean, businesses are, how much do businesses spend every year on cybersecurity themselves? And I think in some ways you have city governments, state governments, and maybe parts of the federal government, I'm not sure, but that are sometimes vulnerable because they don't pay enough attention to it. And even some of, our, uh, some of our utilities are the same way. So when I was chair of the Energy and Technology Committee, working with Governor Malloy, we did the first cybersecurity report. We, we commissioned it for our state's electric utilities because we wanted to see how they were set up in case of a cybersecurity attack. And they actually, interestingly, they were opposed to the idea because they're like, oh no, we got this. We don't need, we don't need anybody you know, asking us to do this. We, we already know. Well, we still went ahead and, and forced them to do it anyway. And lo and behold, they found a bunch of holes in their security and they were able to then make some changes. And I think they now do this more annually uh, than they may have done in the past in a more aggressive manner. So you know, there's it's a lot of that going on, and I think that you know we need to look at our utilities, our infrastructure, uh, and which is why I think the infrastructure bill is really important. And I and I don't and I hope maybe that Build Back Better will have some of that, some more of that as well. So whether it's in our utilities or any type of way in which we access information in our in our government. Uh, we need to make sure that it is uh, at the utmost of security. Now, we're kind of used to, you know, if a company says, oh, we had a data breach, you know, people go, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, they're, they're kind of used to it. And they, they, uh, not that it's right, but, you know, there's almost, I think, a, they get a little bit of a pass. When if it happens, if somebody broke into our DMV records, I don't think that the state would get that kind of a pass. And, I, and that, um, you know, we, we need to be making sure that we're doing everything possible to... To safeguard information, I will say that when uh, Anthem had a security breach years ago, this is when I first became a junior leader. We we did not have a law about having that information, insurance information, encrypted. So we I took the lead and passed a law that said that that information had to be encrypted, and that preventing hopefully in the future that type of um, that type of cyber attack again. So you know all those things are important. I think data privacy is really important. Net neutrality is very important. And, you know, unfortunately, the federal government's not doing anything about that. Um, I continue to kind of beat my head against the wall for the fact that net neutrality is not getting done on a federal level. People talk a good game, but until I see results, nothing's done. Data privacy, I think you're going to start, you're just going to see state by state by state doing it. We passed a data privacy bill in the state Senate. Uh, it, it got stripped out of the uh, bill Uh, a larger bill in the house and sent back so we didn't pass it but at least we got through one chamber i'm hopeful that we will get it through next legislative session that begins in february and we're getting more and more people around the table and they're really starting to you know companies that were fighting us are now starting to figure out that you know we're serious about it and that uh states are doing it on their own if they don't want a patchwork of 50 different laws then they better work with us because we're, we're talking we as legislators are talking to our counterparts around the country to put together the strongest possible bone.
1: No, it's an issue we're going to, it's so important and uh, it's, important for people to realize that the the state's role is important in that as well. So let's talk a little bit about how you got into public service, this honorable profession, as we said. People can't see you, but I can see that there are a couple plaques on the wall behind you. And when I was doing some research for this, this is the story that I didn't know about even though we've known each other a long time, that when you were eight years old, you got involved in public uh, discussion around a a field in your neighborhood. So tell tell us what happened and was that your kind of first first interaction with, with government and what was that experience? like
2: yeah I, I you know go back to where i started from where you know i say like i don't come from a political family and um i have you know it's like people say how'd you get in po- how'd you get into politics i'm like i don't know i mean who knows right this is like crazy stuff because you know getting your putting your name out there requires a certain amount of craziness i think um even though you know we want to do all good things i mean to put your name on a ballot is you know, it takes a little bit of audacity, I guess, to do it, even though maybe you don't, we all don't think that in the moment.
1: We'll call it bravery. I said, we'll call it bravery. You can
2: call it craziness. Yeah. <laughs> we'll call it bra- bravery. There you go. <laughs> but
1: uh, yeah,
2: I would say that, you know, growing up, at least on my dad's side of the family, uh, but I think my mom's side of the family talked politics too. And I think one side, my mom's side was all kind of uh, Reagan Republican. My dad's side were all FDR Democrats. So I think there was certain amount of pragmatism that still stays with me today around my my uh, dad's side and my my grandparents there we're talking probably talking about it at the dinner table one night and somebody was saying something and for some reason it just bothered me and I, I thought well I guess I'll just write a letter to the mayor and he wrote me back and because I, I said you know you're making this field it's called Duffy's Field at the time now it's called Veterans Park He wanted to develop it and and I wrote a letter to the mayor saying hey I don't think that's a great idea and you know it was very inspiring to me that he wrote me back and you know I think as I as I uh, talk to people and I spend a lot of time or at least I did before COVID in the schools meeting with kids because I always think one it's the mayor at the time Bill Collins wrote back to me who's now a neighbor of mine and that was inspiring and I I really feel that outside of the laws and the bills and everything else constituent services that we do, that for me, the one of the most important thing that I can do, if not the most important thing I can do, is inspire the next generation to public service. And so if that means, you know, making sure I write back every kid who writes me or going into the schools to make sure that they know who their state senator is. That's what I want to do because I really, you know, I don't need all of them to get into public service, but if I get a few of them to get into public service, uh, I'd like all of them to register to vote. But I want to get some of them into public service, and you know, over the years, I've had moms say to me or kids say to me, "Hey, thanks, you know, I met you in the fourth grade, uh, or you know, you came to my school at some point, and I got somehow I got now involved in uh, diplomatic diplomatic stuff in college, or I got involved, I, uh, you turned me on to politics somehow. That's what I want to hear, and that's what I think all of our jobs are: is to really inspire the next generation. We can't have kids who who are not engaged uh, as adults uh, into into this world, so, so yeah, so I, you know, I wrote him about uh, Mary Collins, about uh, Duffy's Field, and I then I wrote him about litter at the beach, which litter still bothers me to this day. Uh, I'm out there picking up litter myself, and uh, when I was in fifth grade, I was on the student council, you know, surprise, surprise, and I wrote a letter to Mary O'Connor, inviting him to our student council meeting, and my mom still has a very geeky picture of me shaking the hand of Mary O'Connor at the time, who was actually a social studies teacher in a, a middle school in town. So I think he understood kind of uh, why he should come to that school and say hi to this crazy fifth grader who wrote him a letter. But um, so I was fortunate that way to have those adults who who responded to me. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I'm being interviewed and, and why I'm in this honorable profession.
1: I love it. I love it. And you, I mean, so do you think from that very early time when you had those positive experiences, you thought, that's something you kept doing it. I know in college you yeah. were a student senator and then you interned for Senator Dodd. And yeah. so did you think all along this is going to be my career, or was this just something that you were doing on the side? Or how did you think about it?
2: You know, it's so interesting because I don't, I don't think I knew. I knew I loved it. You know, I, I had a, a guy who was a state representative who then became mayor. And when he won his mayor, he said, now we got to get you elected. And I said, I had no idea what you're talking about mm. because I just got married. We just bought our house and, you know, things were good. And so I was so fortunate in high school to have this guy, Alex Knopp, who was, who was a state rep and used to take me up to Hartford all the time. I was so fortunate to have Chris Dodd, who who accepted me as an intern and then got involved in John Larson uh, with him when he ran for governor. You know, so you just kind of go through these steps over time, you know, then you kind of see And when I got elected, I remember going to the House and seeing my name on the board going, I can't believe this. I can't believe I'm here. Because I've been a realtor for for 10 years and was very happy doing that. And I love the flexibility and loved kind of inserting myself in the political process. But did I ever see myself elected? And it's like, mm, I don't, you know, who does in some ways? I guess some people do. But I, I never, again, maybe had the, had the bravery or audacity to think that I could actually be elected. And then never thought I'd be in the state Senate because that was a gerrymandered Republican district. And then whoever thought I'd be like a Senate Majority Leader? I mean, that's it's kind of crazy to think about all those things. But, you know, one thing I will say is because people say to me, well, what do you want to do next? You know, what's your what's your path? You know, what where do you want to go to Washington? You want to do this? You want to do that? I say, you know what, for me, it's and this, I, this is such a not political answer, and I hope people view it this way, is that I tell people just keep your head down, work hard, do what you're supposed to do, and opportunities will come along. If you are one of those people who is always worried about the next step or or kind of positioning yourself for the next step, people see that. They see kind of that phoniness or they see the um, that you're not in it for, for them, you're in it for yourself, then opportunities won't come along. So just keep your head down, do your job. And that's why I love New Deal because New Deal people are people who really do keep their head down. They work hard. They look for solutions. They're doing different things and that's why you see so many new deal leaders who actually do get that next opportunity because they are producing they're getting things done they're working with others uh they're making a difference and that's that i think is the secret of of success and whether political world or, or anything else you know if, if you're genuinely doing things for others you will succeed if you're doing something just for whatever the next step is do something else
1: I couldn't agree with you more on that. I completely agree with that philosophy, both for life and politics. You know, the best ideas are the best politics I learned back back in the day. And I feel like that's true. And I think that's a great place to end it. I've been so fortunate to call you a friend for so long. I'm so happy you could come on the show. And thank you for all you've done and all you continue to do. You're, you're super inspiring to me and just fun to talk to you today.
2: Yeah, thank you. I, I really love being on this podcast and I was so excited to get the invitation to uh, to be a part of it. And really, uh, people sometimes call us politicians. I'm like, I'm not a politician. We are public servants. We have to kind of upgrade the terminology of who we are, so we we then can earn the respect that I think that we work so hard for helping people. And so I think New Deal is so part of that. I'm I'm grateful to be part of this group, and I've always been grateful to be part of it. I feel like, uh, as I said in a text one time, one of the uh, one of the elders of, of New Deal being in the second class. And it's just it's been so great meeting everybody and being so inspired and having you and and Helen and others just being a part of it. So thank you for that. And thanks for all the opportunities you give us.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to see you.
0: Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more Amazing Leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.